0: Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukis. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. You're on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world post-war years, Americans looked to the future with hope. Scientific advances and technological marvels made the years to come something to look forward to. But when economic growth slowed and environmental concerns and overpopulation fears crept up, that all changed. The future became frightening. In this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, I'm talking with Robin Hanson, who thinks a future of radical scientific and economic progress is still possible. Robin is a professor of economics at George Mason University and author of the Overcoming Bias blog. His books include The Age of M and The Elephant in the Brain. Robin, welcome to the podcast.
1: I'm so happy to be here.
0: Way back in 2000, you wrote a paper called Long-Term Growth as a Sequence of Exponential Modes. I'm just going to read the, the, the summary. You wrote, if one takes seriously the model of economic growth, as a series of exponential modes, then it seems hard to escape the conclusion that the world economy will likely see a very dramatic change within the next century to a new economic growth mode with a doubling time, perhaps as short as two weeks. Is that still your expectation for the 21st century?
1: It's my expectation for the next couple of centuries, whether it's the 21st (laughs) isn't quite so clear.
0: Has anything happened in the intervening two decades now, two decades, to make you think that it's,
1: something might happen sooner rather than later, or rather just later? Just later, I'm afraid. Uh, I mean, we have a lot of people hyping AI at the moment. Right? Sure. So a lot of people I, I very, one of them. very <laughs> expecting rapid progress soon. And yeah. so I think I've had a long enough baseline there to think, no, maybe not, but let's go with the priors.
0: Is it a technological mechanism that will cause this? Is it AI? Is it we found the right general purpose technology and then that will that will launch us into very, very rapid growth?
1: That would be my best guess, but just to be clear for our listeners, yes. we just look at history, we seem to see these exponential modes. Right. There's, say, four of them so far if we go pre-human. Mm-hmm. And then the modes are relatively steady and then have pretty sharp transitions. That is the Transition to a growth rate of 50 or 200 times faster happens within less than a doubling time. So what
0: was the last mode?
1: We're, we're in industry at the moment. Okay. Doubles right. roughly every 15 years. Yeah. Uh, started around 1,800 or 1,700. Mm-hmm. The previous mode was farming doubled every 1,000 years. Mm-hmm. And so in roughly... Uh, less than a thousand years, we saw this rapid transition to our current thing, less than a doubling time. The previous mode before that was foraging, where humans doubled roughly every quarter million years. Mm -hmm. And in definitely less than a quarter million years, we saw a transition there. And so then the prediction is that uh, we will see another transition and it will happen in less than 15 years uh, to a faster growth mode. And then if you look at the previous increases in growth rates, they were again, a factor of 60 to 200. And so that's what you'd be looking for in the next mode. Now, obviously, I want to say you're just looking at a low data set here, right. four events. Right. You can't be too confident, but come on, you gotta guess that maybe a next one would happen.
0: If you go back to sort of that late '90s period, I mean, there was a lot uh, of optimism. There are a lot of books. My gosh, you pick up Wired magazine back then. Right. <laughs> there, I did there, there, right. Plenty, plenty of optimism that. That something was happening, that we were on the verge of something. One of my favorite examples, and that sort of non-technologist example, is a, uh, and and I've kept this report, it was a report from Lehman Brothers from uh, like December 1999. It was called Beyond 2000. And they were full of predictions how, maybe not talking about exponential growth, but we're in for a period of very fast growth, like, like 1960s style growth. Just is very bullish um prediction for the next two decades. Now, Lehman did not make it another decade. <laughs> itself. Right, exactly. So do you think was the, the problem that some of these predictions don't seem to have panned out and the optimism so far maybe maybe you think I'm being overly pessimistic on what's happened over the past twenty years, but do you think it was because we didn't understand the technology uh that's supposed to be drive these changes? Did we do something wrong? Um or is it just a lot of people who love tech, love the idea of
1: growth, and we all just got too excited? I think it's just a really hard problem. Mm-hmm. So we're in this world, where we're living with it, it's growing really fast, again, doubling every 15 years. And we've long had this sense that it's possible for something much bigger. So automation, possibility of robots, AI, sure. it's sat in the background for a long time. And people have been wondering, is that coming? And if it's coming, it looks like a really big deal. And roughly every 30 years, I'd say, we've seen these bursts of interest right. in AI and public concern, like media articles. You know, it's movies, 60s, now right? we have the 90s, 30s, now again. 60s, 90s, right. and, and again, 2020. Every 30 years, a burst of interesting concern about something that's not crazy, like it might well happen. And if it was going to happen, then the kind of precursors you might expect to see is investors realizing it's about to happen and bidding up <laughs> Assets that were gonna be you know important for that to really high levels. And that's what you did see around 99, right? right. <laughs> a lot of people thought, well, this might be it. Right. The market was telling us <laughs> the mar the market test of the singularity right. <laughs> seemed to be was being passed. I- a test that it's not actually being passed quite so much at the moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> so in some sense, you had a better story then in terms of look, the investors seem to believe in this.
0: Right. You could look at also the obviously actually harder economic numbers, productivity numbers. Right.
1: And you know, we we've, we've had a steady increase in automation over you know, centuries, but people keep wondering, Is we're about to have a new kind of automation. Is, is And if, if we are, will we see that in new kinds of demos or new kinds of jobs? And people have been looking out for these signs of, are we about to enter a new era? And that's been the big issue. It's like, it, will this time be different? Right. And so I got to say this time at the moment doesn't look different, but eventually there'll be a different, this time that'll be different. And then it'll be really different. So it's not crazy to be watching out for this and maybe taking some chances betting on it. If we were approaching
0: the, a, a kind of acceleration, a, a leap forward, we mentioned, what would be the signs? It, would it just be kind of what we saw in the 90s? I mean, what would you, what would we expect to see?
1: So the scenario is you know, within a 15-year period, maybe a five-year period, we go from current 4% growth rate doubling every 15 years to maybe doubling every month, right. a crazy high doubling, right? right? And that would have to be on the basis of some new technology and therefore investment. So you'd have to see a new promising technology <laughs> that a lot of people think is could potentially be big. And then a lot of investment going, that. a lot of investors saying, yeah, there's a pretty big chance this will be it. And not just financial investors, you would expect to see people like college students, deciding to major in that, right? Mm-hmm. People moving to wherever it is, right? That would be the big signs is investment moving toward anything. And then you would start, and the key thing is you would see actual big, fast productivity increases, right? right? There'd be some companies and cities who are just booming, All right. like, and it would be booming out of things. So you were talking, I mean, stagnation recently, right? right? 60s were faster than now, but, you know, that's within a factor of two. But we're talking a factor of 60, 200. Right. So, right. The, the time so we don't need really to <laughs> spend a lot of
0: time on like sort of the data measurement issues. Like, well, there's productivity up 1.7, right. 2.1. I mean,
1: if you're a, a greedy investor and you want to be really in on this early, right. so you get to buy it cheap before everybody right. else, then you got to be looking at those really early indicators, right? But if you're like the rest of us wondering, like, do I change my job? Do I change my career? You know, things like that. You might as well wait and wait to see something really big. So even at the moment, we've got a lot of exciting demos, you know, Dolly, GPT-3, things like right. that. But... If you ask for commercial impact and ask them, you know, how much money are people making? They shrug their shoulders and they say, "Soon, maybe." But that's what I would be looking for. Are those things, when people are generating a lot of revenue, right. there's a lot of customer making a lot of money. Then that's the sort of thing to maybe consider. Something I've
0: um, I've written about probably probably too often is a uh, uh, the long bets, the long bets website, and uh, Robert to economist Robert Gordon, Eric Brynjolfsson. They've made a long bet. Uh, uh, Gordon uh, takes the role of techno-pessimist, Brunelovson techno-optimist, and they they basically bet, let me just briefly read it in case you don't have to have it memorized. Private non-farm business productivity growth will average at least 1.8% per year from the first quarter of 2020 to the last quarter of 2029. Now, if it does that, that's an acceleration. That is- Brunelovson says yes.
1: Gordon says no. I mean, again, what would you would you'd you think... want to pick a bigger cutoff? Though, okay, <laughs> so I mean, productivity growth in the last decade is maybe half that, right? So they're looking yeah. at a doubling, and a right. doubling is news, right? But honestly, a doubling is within the usual fluctuations. So right. if you look over, say, the last two hundred years, and we say sometimes some cities grow faster, some industries grow faster, you know, we have this steady growth rate, but it, it contains fluctuations. So I think the key thing, as always, when you're looking for a regime change, right. is you're looking at there's an average and a fluctuation. And when is a new fluctuation out of the range of the previous ones? Right. And that's when I would start to really pay attention, You know, when it's not just the typical magnitude. So honestly, that's within the range of the typical magnitudes you might expect if we just had an unusually productive new technology, even if we stay in the same mode for another century.
0: We look at sort of the enthusiasm we had at the turn of this century. Uh, making forecasts is very hard, but do you think we did the things that would be encouraging of rapid growth? Do you think as a society we did things that were discouraging? Um, does technology have such its own momentum that it doesn't much matter what we do in Washington or, or that kind of thing?
1: Do we create an ecosystem, a better ecosystem of growth over the past 20 years or a worse one? I don't think the past 20 years have been especially a deviation, but I think slowly since around 1970, we have seen a decline in our support for innovation. I think uh, increasing regulations, increasing you know size of organizations in response to regulation, and just a lot of barriers. And even more disturbingly, I think it's worth noting, we've seen a convergence of regulation around the world. Mm-hmm. So if there were 150 countries, each of which had different independent regulatory regimes, I would be less concerned because now if one nation messes it up and doesn't allow things, some other nation might pick up the slack. But we've actually seen pretty strong convergence even in this global pandemic. So for example, challenge trials were an idea early voiced, but no nation allowed them anywhere. And even now hardly they've been tried. And say, if you look at nuclear energy, electric magnetic spectrum, organ sales, you know, uh, medical experimentation, just look at a lot of different regulatory areas, even airplanes, you just see an enormous convergence worldwide. <laughs> and that's a problem because it means whatever, we're blocking innovation the same everywhere, and so there's just no place to go to try something new. There's always concern
0: in Europe about, about their own productivity, about their technological growth, and there's you know, they're always putting out white papers in Europe about what what we can do. And I remember reading that somebody decided that they that they figured out that Europe's comparative advantage was in regulation. Like that yeah. was we had that was Europe's <laughs> <Export>. superpowers <laughs> regulation. Yeah. And speaking of convergence, a lot of people who want to regulate the tech industries here, they've been looking to what Europe is doing, but Europe is Europe has not shown a lot of tech progress. They don't they don't generate right. the big technology companies. So that to me that's that's unsettling. Like that kind of not only we're we converging, but we're converging sometimes toward the least productive
1: areas of the advanced world. Right. In a lot of people's minds, the key thing is the unsafe dangers that tech might provide. And they look to Europe and they say, look how they're making, providing security there. Look at all the protections they're offering against the various kinds of insecurity we could have. Sure, we, we want to copy them, right, for that? Right. I don't, I don't want to copy them for that. I, 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 I'm, I'm willing to, I'm willing to take a few people, risks. But many people want that level of security. So I'm actually concerned about this over the coming centuries. I think this trend is actually a trend toward not just stronger global governance, but stronger global community, or even mobs, if we call it. That is, the reason why nuclear energy is regulated the same everywhere is that the regulators in each place are part of a world community, and they each want to be respected in that community. And in order to be respected, they need to conform to what the rest of the community thinks. And that's going to just keep happening more over the coming centuries, I fear.
0: Uh, one, One of my favorite shows, uh, more realistic science fiction shows and book series is the, is the Expanse, which takes place a couple hundred years in the future, where there's a a, uh, a global government, which doesn't certainly doesn't seem to be an imp- seems to be a democratic global government. I'm not right. sure how efficient it is. I'm not sure how entrepreneurial it is. So, uh, do you think then is likely that if we have this? Certainly, the evidence seems to be that global governance does not lead to a vibrant trial and error experimenting kind of uh, ecology, but just the opposite. One that focuses on safety
1: and we'll, and caution and risk aversion. And it's going to get a lot worse. So I have a book called the age of M work, love and life and robots Rule the earth. And it's about a very radical changes in technology. And most people who read about that, they go, Oh, that's terrible. We right. need more regulations to stop that. Right. <laughs> and I think if you just look toward the longer run of changes, most people, when they start to imagine the large changes that will be possible, they want to stop that and put limits and, and control it somehow. And that's gonna give even more of an impotence to global governance. That is, once you realize how we might change, our children might become radically different from us, uh, then that scares people. And they really then want global governments to limit that. And I fear this is gonna be the biggest choice humanity ever makes, mm-hmm. which is, in the next few centuries, we will probably have stronger global, global governance, stronger global community, and we will credit it for solving many problems, including war and global warming and inequality and things like that. And we will like the sense that we've all come together and we get to decide what changes are allowed and what aren't. Right. <laughs> and we limit how strange our children can be. And even though we will have given up on some things, we will just enjoy that sense of, because that's very ancient human sense right. to want to be part of a community and decide together. And then a few centuries from now, there will come this day when it's possible for a colony ship to leave the solar system mm-hmm. to go elsewhere. And we will know by then that if we allow that to happen, that's the end of the era of shared governance. From that point on, competition reaffirms itself. War reaffirms itself. And the descendants who come out there will then compete with each other and come back here and impose their will here probably. And that scares the hell out of people. Indeed, that's the the point of the... Uh, expanse. Uh, yes. The, the,
0: the, geo, the geopolitics is that while Earth... Um, it's kind of a mixed bag with how successful Earth's been. Uh, they didn't—they didn't kill themselves in a nuclear war, at least. But the geopolitics just continues, and nothing that doesn't change. It's you know, there's, we're still human beings, even if we right. happen to be living on Mars or Europa, and those all—all all that conflict will just re, re-emerge.
1: Although I think it gets the scale wrong there. I think as long as we stay in the solar system, a central government will be able to impose its rule on outlining colonies. So basically, the solar system is pretty transparent. (laughs) Anywhere in the solar system you are, if you're doing something somebody doesn't like, they can see you and they can throw something at you and hit you. (laughs) And so I think a central government will be feasible within the solar system for quite some time. But once you get to other star systems, that ends. It's not feasible to punish colonies 20 light years away (laughs) when you don't get the message of what they did for 20 years later. Uh, That just becomes infeasible then. So I would think the expanse is telling a more human story because it's happening within the solar system. But I think, in fact, this world government becomes a solar system government and it allows expansion of the solar system on its terms, but it would then be even stronger as a centralized governance community which prevents change. The uh, recent blog post you you mentioned,
0: uh, Age of M, since you just brought it up, and you wrote that when you think about the future, you... Try to think about it as an economist. You use economic analysis to, quote, predict the social consequences of a particularly envisioned future technology. Have futurists not done that? Futurism has changed. I've written a lot about the the, the classic 1960s right. futurists uh, who, you know, these are a lot of very big imaginative thinkers, and then – they tend to be pretty optimistic, and then they tend to get pessimistic, and then futurism became kind of like marketing, like you know, like brand, like these were brand awareness people, not really you know big thinkers. When they approach it, do they approach it as technologists? Do they approach it as sociologists? Are economists just not interested in this subject? They they don't do it. You, do right? We need, why don't they? And do
1: we need Good more? Good question. Of that? So I'd say there's three standard kinds of futurists. One kind of futurist is a short-term marketing consultant who's basically telling you which way the colors will go or right. the you know, market demand will go in the short term. And that's a very economically Leon valuable green thing. green in or right? lime green in or And that's economically right? valuable. Those people should definitely exist, right? <laughs> then there's a more aspirational, inspirational kind of futurist. And that's changed over the decades depending on what people want to be inspired by or afraid of. <laughs> So, you know, in the 50s, 60s, it might be about, you know, America going out and becoming powerful, or later it's about the environment, and then it's about inequality and gender relations, right? And just, in some sense, that also the science fiction is another kind of futurism, and these two tend to be related in the sense that science fiction mainly focuses on sort of as an indirect way to tell metaphorical stories about us, right? because we're not so interested in the future, really, we're interested in us. And those are futures serving various kinds of communities, but neither of them are that realistically oriented they're not focused on what's likely to actually happen they're focused on what, what will inspire people or, or entertain people or make people afraid or tell a morality tale mm-hmm. but if you're interested in what's actually going to happen then my claim is you want to just take our standard best theories and just straightforwardly apply them in a you know thoughtful way so many people when they talk about the future they say it's just impossible to say anything about the future no one could possibly know. Therefore, science fiction speculations are the best we can possibly do. You might as well go with that. Right. I think that's just wrong. And so my demonstration in the age of M is to say, if you take a very specific technology scenario, you can just turn the crank with econ one hundred and one, sociology one hundred and one, electrical engineering one hundred and one, just all the standard things, and just apply it to that scenario, and you can just say a lot. But what you will find out is that it's weird. It's not very inspiring. <laughs> And it doesn't tell the perfect horror story of what you should avoid. It's just a complicated mess. And that's what you should expect because that's what we would seem to our ancestors, right? right. From somebody 200 or 2,000 years ago, our world, it doesn't make a good morality tale for them. <laughs> First of all, they would just have trouble getting their head around it. Why did that happen? How does that even mean, right? And then they're not so sure what to like or dislike about it because it's just too weird. I mean, You're trying to tell a nice morality tale, you know, uh, the simple heroes and villains, Right and this is too messy. So the real futures you should just predict are going to be too messy to be a simple morality tale, and they're going to be weird, and that's going to make them hard to deal with. Do you think it matters
0: uh, the kinds of stories we tell ourselves about what the future could hold? I mean, my bias is I think it does. I think it matters if all we paint for people is a really gloomy one, then not only is it depressing, then it's like, what are we even doing here? Because if we're, gonna, if we're going to move forward, if we're going to take risks with technology, there needs to be some sort of payoff, right? But yet, it seems like a lot of the culture continues. I mean, that we mentioned the expanse, which by the modern standard of a lot of science fiction, I find to be pretty optimistic. Some people say, well, it's not optimistic, because half the population's on a basic income, and there's war. But But, hey, there are people. Global warming didn't kill everybody. Nuclear war didn't kill everybody. We continued. We advanced. Not perfect, but society seems to be progressing. I mean, has that mattered, do you think, that fact that we've been telling ourselves such terrible stories
1: about the future? Where we used to tell much better ones. The first order theory about change is that change doesn't really happen because people anticipate it or plan for it or vote on it. Mostly, this world's been changing as a side effect of lots of local economic interests and technological interests and pursuits. So, the world is just on this train with nobody driving, and that's scary and should be scary, I guess. Uh, and to to a first order, it doesn't really matter what stories we tell or how we think about the future because we haven't actually been planning for the future. We haven't actually been choosing the future. Just it just happens when we do while that's we're doing something else. Side effect of other things, right? right. But that's the first order. That's the zeroth order effect, right? The next order effect might be, well, look, places in the world will vary and to what extent they win or lose over the long run. And there are things that can critically influence that, right? And so being too cautious and playing it safe too much and being comfortable predictably will probably lead you to not win the future. <laughs> and so if you're interested in having us, whoever us is, win the future or have a bright Dynamic future, then you like us to be a little more ambitious about such things. So I would think it is a compliment. The more we are excited about the future, and the future requires changes, the more we will be able to telling ourselves, "Well, yeah, this change is painful, but that's the kind of thing you have to do if you want to get where we're
0: going." Uh, if you've been reading the New York Times lately or the New Yorker, you, the average person may have discovered something called long-termism. Right. Long-termism, uh, which I think is related to something called effective altruism. Right. It's the idea that there are big existential problems facing the world, and we should be thinking a lot harder about them because people in the future, they matter too, not just us, and we should be spending money on these problems. We should be doing more research on these problems.
1: What do you think about this movement? I mean, it
0: sounds logical.
1: Well, if you just compare it to all the other movements out there and their priorities, I got to give this one credit, right? Right. <laughs> Yeah, obviously the future is important, right? right? They're, and, they,
0: they're not just, they
1: are thinking <laughs> directly about it. It's not just something yeah. happens they, and they have ideas. Absolutely. And they are trying to be conscious about that and proactive and altruistic about that. And that's certainly great compared to the vast majority of other activity. Um, now, I have some complaints, but overall I'm happy to praise sort of this sort of thing. Now, the risk is, as with most futurism, that, what it's, even though we're not conscious of it, what we're really doing is sort of projecting our issues now into the future and sort of arguing about future stuff by talking about our stuff, right? Right. So you might say, like, people seem to be really concerned about the future of global warming in two centuries, but all the other stuff that might happen in two centuries, they're not at all interested. It's like, what's the difference there? (laughs) They might say, well, global warming lets them tell this anti-materialist story that they'd want to tell anyway, and, you know, tell it's bad to be materialist and so cut back on material stuff is good right and it's sort of a pro-environment story and so i, I fear that that's also happening to some degree in effective altruism but that's just what you should expect for humans in general that I, effective altruists in terms of their focus on the future are overwhelmingly focus, as far as i can tell on artificial intelligence risk right. and i think that's a bit misdirected it's in a big world, I don't well, my mind. My concern
0: uh, is that we'll be super cautious and before we have developed anything that could really create existential risk, forget about things like, you know, is it is it kind of biased? You know, you know things to be concerned about, but it's not an existential that. We will never get to the point where it's so powerful because we'll we'll have just, you know, like the Lottites,
1: we'll have quashed it early on out of fear. So uh, a friend of mine is Eric Drexler, who years ago was known as, Talking about nanotechnology. Nanotechnology is still a technology in the future. And he experienced uh something that made him a little unsure whether he should have said all these things he said, (laughs) which is that once you can describe a vivid future, the first thing everybody focuses on is all the things that can go wrong. And then they like set up policy to try to focus on preventing the things that go wrong. And That's where the whole conversation goes, and then people are distancing themselves from it. So he found that many people distanced themselves from nanotechnology until they could take over the word because in their mind it reflected these terrible risks. And so people wanted to not even talk about that. But you could ask if he had just inspired people to make the technology but not talked about the larger policy risks, maybe that would be better. It might be in fact true that the world today is broken so much that If ordinary people and policymakers don't know about a future risk, the world's better off because at least they won't mess it up by trying to limit it and control it too early and and too crudely. And then the challenge is, well, maybe you want the technologists who might make it to hear about it and get expired, but you don't want everybody else to be inspired to to control it and correct it and channel it and prepare for it because... Honestly, that seems to go pretty bad. I mean, I guess the question is what technology that people did see well ahead of time, did they not come up with terrible scenarios to worry about? Like, so for example, television, right? People didn't think about television very much ahead of time. And when it came, a lot of people watched it and a lot of people complained about that. But if you can imagine ahead of time, 20 years, imagining people are going to spend five hours a day watching this thing. <laughs> if that's an accurate prediction, people would have... Or cars. As you may know, in the late 1800s, people just did not envision the future of cars. When they envisioned the future of t- transportation, they thought of, saw of you know, dirigibles and trains right. and submarines even, but not cars. <laughs> because cars were these individual things. And if they had envisioned the actual future of cars, you know, automobile accidents, individual people controlling a thing going down the street at 80 miles an hour, they might have thought, that's terrible. We can't allow that. And y- you have to wonder... <laughs> I mean, it's only in the United States, really, that cars took off. And so there's a sense in which the world had rapid technological progress around 1900 or so because the U.S. was an exception worldwide. A lot of technologies were only really tried in the U.S., like even radio. And then the rest of the world copied and followed because the U.S. had so much success with them.
0: I think if you want to, like, come to a a point where sort of that, you know, that optimistic... 90s came to an end it might have been speaking of wire magazine the the bill joy article uh which it doesn't need us i uh, get talking about you know nanotech and gray right. goo and, and all since you since you brought up nanotech at eric drexler is that what is you know the state of that technology is that something because i because we had this nanotechnology initiative but i don't think it was right. working on that kind of no, nanotech is it more, more like a material science
1: as far as creating these sort of replicating tiny machines right. is that well the. So the federal government had a nanotechnology initiative yeah. where they basically took all the stuff they were doing that was dealing with small stuff and they relabeled it. They didn't right. really add more money. They just put it under a new initiative. Right. And then they made sure to make sure nobody was doing anything like the sort of dangerous stuff that could cause the assemblers that Eric was talking right. about. And therefore... Stuff to put in sunscreen. There was still, right, exactly. So <laughs> there was still never much funding there. So right. there's a sense of which... In many kinds of technology areas, somebody can envision ahead of time a new technology that was possible if a concentrated effort goes into a certain area in a certain way, and they're trying to inspire that. But absent that focused effort, you might not see it for a long time. And That would be the simplest story about nanotech. We haven't seen the focused effort and resources that he had proposed. Now, that doesn't mean had we had those <laughs> efforts, we, he would have succeeded. He would just be wrong about what was feasible, how soon. But nevertheless, that still seemed to me an exciting, promising technology that would have been worth the investment to try and still is, I would say. One concern I have about the notion of long-termism
0: is that it seems to place a lot of emphasis on our ability to sort of rally people, get them thinking long-term, taking preparatory steps. And we've just gone through a pandemic which showed that we don't do that very well. And the and the way we dealt with it was not through preparation, but be, be, but but by being a rich, technologically advanced society that could come up with a vaccine. That's my kind of long termism in a way, uh, being right. being rich and technologically
1: capable that you, so you can
0: kind of react
1: to the unexpected. And that's because we allowed an exception in how vaccines were developed in that case. That had we gone with the usual way vaccines had been developed before, it would have taken a lot longer. So. Uh, the problem is when we make too many structures that restrain things, then we aren't able to quickly react to new circumstances. You, you probably know that most companies, they, they might have a forecasting department, but they don't fund it very much. And they don't actually care that much. And almost everything they do is reactive in, in most organizations. <laughs> That's just the fact of how most organizations work. Because, in fact, it is hard to prepare. And it's hard to anticipate things. And it is you know, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't,
0: we shouldn't try to figure out ways to deflect asteroids. I'm not, right. we, 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 we should. Um, but to have a to have this notion of long term long termism over over a broad scope of issues, I just that's fine. But I hope we don't forget the other part. The other part, which is making sure that we we do the right things to create those kind of innovative ecosystems, so we are, we, we do increase wealth, we do increase our technological capabilities, and not be totally dependent on our best guesses right now.
1: So here's a scary. <laughs> Great. Uh, example of how this thinking can go wrong in my mind is that in the uh, long-termism community, there is this serious you know, proposal that many people like, which is called the long reflection. And We've
0: had Toby Ord on here, who, is, okay. who is wrote a book, The Precipice. Uh, right? Yes, the long reflection, which is we solve all the problems and then we wait, take wait, wait, a time we, out. Wait,
1: wait. We stop <laughs> allowing change for a all while right. and for a good long time, maybe a thousand years, even longer. In this period where no change substantially happens, then we talk a lot yeah. about what we could do to deal with things when things are allowed to change again. And we work it all out, and right. then we turn it back on and allow a change. And change. You know, and that's giving a lot of credit to the system of talking. And I actually have to say that… Who's our, talking? is it, our, Are these post-humans talking, or is it people it, like it us? It would be people before like, the change, remember, <laughs> right, so it would right. be people like us. Oh, boy. Um, And so I actually think this is this ancient human intuition from the ancient, from the forager world, you know, before farming era, where in the small band, the way we made most important decisions was to sit down around the campfire and discuss it and then decide together and then do something. That's how, and that's in some sense how everybody wants to make all the big decisions. And that's why they like a world government and a world community because it goes back to that. But I honestly think we have to admit that just doesn't go very well lately. (laughs) We're not actually very capable of having a discussion together and feeling all the options and making choices and then deciding together to do it. That's how we want to be able to work, and that's how we maybe should, but it's not how we are. And so I feel... This long reflection, once we institutionalize a world where change isn't allowed, we would pretty get used to that world. <laughs> Seem very comfortable, and we'd start and voting we for security. we would not really allow the great reflection end, because then that would be this risky into the strange world, and we would like the stable world we were in, and that would be the end of that.
0: I, I should say that uh, I, I very much like Toby Ward's book. Yeah. He's also he's one of my all-time favorite uh, guests. He's really been a fantastic guest. Though so the long, long reflection, I do have uh concerns about. Thanks for listening to part one of my two-part interview with Robin Hansen. Next week, we'll be back to discuss whether we are alone in the universe and what alien life would mean for humanity's long-term potential.